I've been working for a long time in systematic reviews. Uh, began my career as a researcher um, just up the road from here, really, well, um, in the Radcliffe Infirmary at the CTSU Clinical Trial Service Unit. Was employed after having been a student at Oxford and doing my DPhil at Oxford and then not really knowing what to do. And I saw an advert in Daily Information uh, and they were trying to recruit someone. I had no idea about CTSU. People like Richard Doll and Richard Peter, never heard of them. Uh, didn't know about randomised trials, didn't know what a systematic review was. And at the time, we weren't necessarily calling them systematic reviews. CTSU called them overviews. Uh, I hadn't got a clue about any of that and just fell into working in a place that um, now makes me feel like part of uh, this process. And... Um, so, so many of you will know Ian Chalmers. Uh, Ian has been a sort of someone I've I've almost sort of step by step followed Ian uh, through various things. Ian set up the UK Cochrane Centre. I uh, became director of the UK Cochrane Centre after Ian. Ian set up the James Lynn Library, and next year I'll be taking over as editor in chief uh, for the James Lynn Library. It's about the history of of evaluations, and. One of the things that Ian will often say about me is, I'm, he's not a historian, I am. Ian's a better historian than I am. Ian's not here, so I can say it. It just happens that I have my, D, my DPhil uh, sits in uh, history. So Ian will often uh, regard me as more of a historian. I think Ian knows a lot more about how historians should act uh, than I do. So I'm going to try and set the scene. I'm going to take you on a bit of a journey. History of what? Well, is it evidence synthesis, research synthesis, meta-analysis, systematic reviews, reviews? All sorts of words are used for the sorts of things I'm going to describe. Some of these words are subsets of other things. Cochrane reviews are systematic reviews, but they don't all contain a meta-analysis, which is the mathematical bit. Uh, evidence synthesis and research synthesis are words that we might use, and we don't necessarily mean systematic reviews. So the first thing is to think the language of it. My aim is to try and give you a framework for thinking about this history. I cannot stand here and definitively recount the history of systematic reviews. I think we're going to need to wait decades still for that. And someone more informed than me is going to really do the history of systematic reviews. Because there are challenges uh, for me doing it. I'm building on work done by other people. So others have looked at this. I'm providing examples, but one of the things I do feel as wearing my historian hat is history is not about who was first. History is not about this date, this date, this date, this date. I will show you dates, but they're not to say, and this is the first time this ever happened. Anyone who says that is a hostage to fortune. We probably know roughly what was among the first. But there is no reason to believe that something is the first time that the idea was had. Because the idea is not remarkable. Who was early? That's what I think we can talk about. I think we can talk about things that maybe began something. Because without that thing, you know, if the Cochrane Centre hadn't been established in uh, Summertown, then we wouldn't have a Cochrane collaboration. We wouldn't have Cochrane reviews. It needed that thing. We might have had something else, but we wouldn't have had that thing. We wouldn't have meta-analysis if someone hadn't coined the phrase meta-analysis. But we probably would have, and we know we would have, combined analysis of studies, because other people around the same time were writing about how to statistically bring together the results of studies. They weren't calling it meta-analysis. 
history is alive and we're part of it. Um, I'm looking after the systematic reviews module this week simultaneously. Some of you are on the meta-analysis module. Um, I'm in the fortunate position eventually. I'm, I'm going to figure out when did we actually start that systematic reviews module. Two weeks from now I'll be running the randomised trial module. I'm pretty certain we started that in 1998, 20 years ago. Uh, who was still at school 20 years ago in the audience? Anybody? It's teaching. Oh, maybe, but it just, uh, you're looking well for your age. Okay. But just think, you know, some of what I'm going to show you, and now when we're, those of us who do teach, and we teach undergraduates, and you think, I'm telling you what I was doing 25, 30 years ago. You weren't even born when we were doing this. What, how does history feel? History for some of us is going to feel as though it's a, you know, the past. Now, again, one of the things is we think about the evidence-based healthcare courses here in Oxford. They began last century. But when they began, last century was 90 years earlier. So with things are moving, and we've, I'm going to reflect on it as a reviewer, as a researcher, as someone who um, you know, occasionally gets badged as a historian. So we can think, well, how far back does this whole stuff go? One of the, the beauties of the modern age is the internet. And one of the things that the BMJ did was they've digitised all of the BMJ and La Lancet have it, JAMA have it, most of the journals now have had it. They've scanned their stuff and they put it online. So you can go to the BMJ website and you can search for the phrase systematic review. And this is the earliest hit, 1867. It's in a book review. They're not using the phrase the way we might use it now for a scientific a project called a systematic review, but they are using it in a way that is part of why we do systematic reviews. Daunted by the difficulty of any systematic review of these collection of, of monographs, the, the monographs are to do with hospital statistics in London. There's lots of those monographs. So they're saying in, you know, it's too difficult to systematically review them. So we'll take a flying run through the pages, warning our readers that they will do well to indemnify themselves by procuring the volumes for systematic perusal. They're saying we ideally should do a systematic review. That'll be a lot of hard work. That'll take a long time. So we're going to skim it. And you can reflect that now 150 years on, and people are skimming the research that's been done and saying, I'll quickly summarise a couple of studies for you. And you should be thinking, well, hang on a minute, that's a good rough guide to whether or not I should work harder on those studies to understand them for myself. That I should indemnify my, myself by gathering those studies for myself and systematically perusing them. So it's, it's a really nice example of the phrases there. It's highlighting what we would now be doing. And it's warning against doing things too quickly. So key sources, again, the, the slides, are, you know, we'll figure out a way to make the slides available. Uh, but there are, there are things, so Ian with Larry Hedges and Harris Cooper wrote a brief history in 2002. Um, Steph Lewis led some work I'll show on forest plots 2001. Mark Starr, the originator of Update Software, the first publisher of the Cochrane Library, uh, we wrote something with Mark in 2009. And Dan Fox wrote about the impact of reviews on health policy. So these are some of the sources uh, that I will be using. And the James Lind Library uh, URL at the top. So I'm going to take you through 
Uh, so this slide could be a slide that we would use on the course, on the meta-analysis course, to say why are you here, why are you learning about evidence synthesis, why are you learning about systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Because then I'm going to try and illustrate these points about how have they crept in historically. So is it about organising evidence, comparing and contrasting similar studies, doing the mathematics, minimising bias, improving access, appraising quality, building a better study in the future identifying interventions that we should be using uh, in the uh, health system, identifying things that I should buy if I go to Boots the Chemist, or oh, those of you who are practitioners that you should prescribe, surgical procedures you should do if you are a surgeon, procedures I would like done on me if I needed surgery. So these are, this is why we do evidence synthesis today. So I'm going to try and illustrate where, you know, where did some of these ideas come from. So I begin with a, a very long quote. and. Um, I'll tell you where it's from at the end. And it's a sort of, you know, it's a, it's a good rationale for why we do reviews. If, as is sometimes supposed, science consisted in nothing but the laborious accumulation of facts, it would soon come to a standstill, crushed as it were under its own weight. So it's a firm recognition. We've got to recognise that science is moving along. And if all we did as scientists was accumulate facts, we'd just be crushed. The suggestion of a new idea or the detection of a law supersedes much that has previously been a burden on the memory and by introducing order and coherence facilitates the retention and the remainder of in an available form. And again, that's what we do as we learn things. We assimilate the knowledge and we say, okay, on the basis of what we know and what we've just found out, here's how we go forward. Two processes are thus at work side by side. The reception of new material and the digestion and assimilation of the old. One remark, however, should be made. The work which deserves, but I'm afraid does not always receive, the most credit is that in which discovery and explanation go hand in hand, in which not only are new facts presented, but their relation to old ones is pointed out. We could almost use that as a rallying call for systematic reviews. Lord Raleigh, 1885, the British Association for the Advancement of Science. Now again, you have to think, this, is get, this feels like history now. It's the 19th century. It feels old. Um, and it's why we do reviews. So I can bring you more up to date because there's an alternative approach to being, not being crushed by facts and that is simply saying when a new one comes along I throw away an old one. I don't assimilate, I just say I can only, I can only cope with 10 things at a time so when number 11 comes along number 1 has to disappear. We don't like that approach but that is an approach of Homer Simpson. Uh, this is, I've, I've Keep meaning to find the YouTube clip. Uh, if you watch The Simpsons, Homer Simpson, this at one point says this, and I know this as a fact because my son's bought me a calendar of The Simpsons sayings, uh, and each day you'd get a different saying. And on a day in November 20, 2003, this is what the calendar, every time I learn something new, it pushes some old stuff out of my brain. So Lord Raleigh in 1885 is saying we have to assimilate. We have to synthesise the evidence. We have to do systematic reviews. Not using the terminology, but that's what he's talking about. Homer Simpson, beginning of this century, says, you know, just learn new stuff, throw some old stuff away. Clearly that's not what we want to do. But we've got to think about those two approaches. Is it about organising the evidence? So Homer doesn't want to organise the evidence. He's got a, you know, a shelf and he's, he's going to push one thing off as the next thing comes on. Lord Raleigh is saying, no, no, no assimilate the old. So is it about organising? James Lind, P 
people familiar potentially with this, the treaties on scurvy. This is the, the oranges and lemons for people on ships uh, to try and reduce, uh, prevent scurvy. And so you know, several people are aware of that as a thing. Is it the first control trial? No, it's not the first control trial, but it is an early control trial. Not many people are aware that he also tested things like sulfuric acid to see whether or not that could keep scurvy. You know, here, have some sulfuric acid. That might stop you getting scurvy. Uh, didn't work. Not, not quite sure uh, how sure he is it didn't work, but I don't think it would be uh, something we wish to recommend. But what's important about this book from the 1750s is not just the trial, the study that was done on the ship, but it is also together with a critical and chronological view of what's been published on the subject. <coughs> 1750s, trying to bring together and catalogue what has been done on the subject. And part of these examples is it's not new. It has changed. The last 20 years on reviews are dramatically different, but it's not new. Lind, James Lind, is doing that in 1753. Why is he doing it? And again, look at this and think, oh, do you know, that's what we've been learning about on meta-analysis and systematic reviews. We're learning about prejudices and biases. We're learning that stuff might be rubbish. James Lynn, 1753, is saying, before I tell you about my study, I'll tell you about what's already happened. Because I need to do that. Because I need to set my study in context, but also there's rubbish out there. And I need to tell you what's rubbish and what you might believe and what might help you. So, um, you know, think about reviews you've read. Think about those of you who work on reviews. Think about reviews you've done. Part of it is about cataloguing, placing things in order, finding out mistakes, managing prejudice. We now talk about the risk of bias. Well, James Lind is talking about rooting out prejudice. Same thing, same ideas. Issues around quality assessment. Then there's other curiosity uh, about this um, book, because if you look at one of the publishers, one of the publishers is Cochrane. Uh, so you think, oh, wow, what, what, what um, you know, is this Nostradamus? Is this, the, you know, he's sort of saying, look, I'm going to do this, and actually one of my publishers is called Cochrane, and many, many, you know, two centuries from now, there'll be this thing called Cochrane doing these, these reviews. Not a history of Cochrane, but there is, you know, it's a, it's a sort of bizarre coincidence that one of the publishers of James Lynn's treatise on scurvy is Cochrane. Uh, and so let's jump to 1979 and Archie Cochrane, the man who the Cochrane collaboration is named after. Archie uh, Cochrane, I never met Archie Cochrane. Archie Cochrane had died before the collaboration was formed. Uh, but in 79, it is surely a great criticism of our profession that we have not organised a critical summary by specialty or subspecialty, adapted periodically of all relevant randomised controlled trials. And that's a preface in uh, a book I'll come to. But he's sort of saying, look, you know, 200 years earlier, James Lind organised the literature. But 200 years later, Archie Cochrane is talking to the medical profession, primarily talking to obstetrics and gynaecology, saying, this is terrible. We've not organised the stuff. We're doing these trials. We're not organising them. We're not learning from them. We're just doing them. And as researchers, sometimes we just get enthused by doing our own study. And we don't think hard enough about what we're supposed to be doing. So then we have to say, well, some of the times we're criticised. It's not scientific research. All you're doing is reviewing. Well, that's just like going to a restaurant and telling us how good the food was. Yeah, that's not science. Well, it is science. 
and it's not new that people have recognised it as science. Feldman, 71, may be considered a type of research in its own right, one using a characteristic set of research techniques and methods. And again, those of you on the courses, that's what you're on the courses, you're learning these methods. Uh, it's not go to a restaurant and tell us what you think about the food. It could theoretically be go to a restaurant, systematically appraise the food in a highly structured way, write your review of the food and make a recommendation about whether or not other people should go there in as unbiased a way as possible. So we can systematically review um, restaurants. We're not going to necessarily see it as science, but the process of the systematic review, it's science. Light and Smith, 71 noting that it's impossible to address some hypotheses other than by comparing and contrasting the studies. We still have to show this occasionally because here in Oxford people can do DPhils that are systematic reviews. But go to some other universities in some other countries and they'll say, what, a systematic review is a, is a PhD? No, no, that's not, that's not research. We still have these discussions. I still share these quotes with colleagues in other countries to say, well, look, Here's some quotes for you, and here's some Oxford DPhils that are systematic reviews. And I think you may have heard of the University of Oxford as a place that uh, has been doing research for a while. And if they think it's worthy of a DPhil, maybe you should be thinking about it as a PhD. And often having to defend students in other places who want to do these as research, and their supervisors are saying, oh, it's not research. Well, it is research. It's well accepted as research. Eugene Garfield, who uh, is responsible for the concept around impact factors and science citation index, um, suggested there should even be a prize for, for, for this process. It's 1977. This is not the year to, you know, in the 2000s when we're becoming much more familiar with reviews. But these are sporadic examples at time of people talking about them. So let's get some early examples. Uh, the, place, the source for this is uh, the work that Ian uh, um, Harris-Cooper and Larry Hedges published in 2002. So they identified, so Ian and Harris and, um, are saying it's not until the early 20th century that the science of research as we know it began to emerge. So that's the scientific bit. So we might say that James Lind was about cataloguing, looking for bias and so on. The scientific bit, maybe that's to do with the mathematics and the statistics. And the example that they, they cite for that, Carl Pearson, 1904, uh, article in the BMJ, pulls the data from five studies of immunity, six studies of mortality, to look at the effects of vaccines. Pooling the studies, saying none of the studies on their own would be enough. I am going to find the studies and I am going to pool them. And it, this journey that we're on is to say there's not, it's not new. The mathematics of pooling studies to boost the power, to think about a word that we're all now so familiar with as, as reviewers, if my point will work, heterogeneous, heterogeneity. Carl Pearson, 1904, is talking about that as an issue when they're pooling the studies. Extra ESP, extrasensory perception, a book from the 1940s. And it's got a systematic view of the, of the research done to see whether or not extrasensory perception is valid. Systematically reviewing something into a book. The comparison of the statistics of more than one experiment suggests the counterpart, the combination of them for an estimate of total significance. That's meta-analysis, that's the statistical pooling of results. It's not new. But then we hit terminology. 
So then someone has to invent the term. Jean Glass, 1976, invents the term meta-analysis. That's where the term comes from. Because it's not a systematic review. It's a sort of, well, we know linguistically what it means. It's a review that is systematic. Meta-analysis, you know, some, he, made up, he made the term. A, April 76, American Educational Research Association presidential address talks about, describes the need for better synthesis and introduces the term meta-analysis. And the, the lecture is then published in Educational Researcher and it's down there. And it just, you know, I won't, I'm not going to read all the quotes out, you can read them faster than I can. But he's sort of saying, you know, there's meta-mathematics, there's meta-psychology, there's meta-evaluation. I've never heard of those. I think those terms have, have been and gone. Meta-analysis has stuck. Meta-analysis is the analysis of analyses. Why? And just read the, like, think of the second paragraph. He's working in education, he's working in behavioural things. And they're saying, look, we, in five years' time, researchers can produce hundreds of studies on IQ. And again, we look at typical review now. We say, oh, no, I've got 20 studies, 30 studies, 40 studies. How am I going to cope? Gene Glass is saying there's going to be hundreds of studies. And those studies in isolation, that's not going to be reliable. But actually what they're really saying is pooling the results will give us something reliable. Meta-analysis, the integration of research through the statistical analysis, citing Gene Glass. So, so Mary Smith, which is... Uh, Jean Glass is Mary Smith's husband. Uh, 375 studies, 833 effect size measures. Just feel that, those of you who are reviewers, you feel the pain of extracting data from 20 or 30 studies. Feel 375 studies, 833 results being pulled. And then feel the value of that, because this is trying to drive to an average. Whether or not you believe the average, that's not our job as systematic reviewers. Our job as systematic reviewers is to present the evidence. And people might say, that's an average result, that's not a good guide to the individual. That's a valid argument, that's fine, fair enough. But, maybe you're going to have to use the average, because maybe the results for an individual are not a reliable guide. So again, there's, there's a quote, I'm not going to go through it again, but justifying it, but the sense being that this is not new. What we now feel... And some of the challenges as we do reviews, the concept has been around for a while, but it didn't explode. It didn't take off when Jean Glass introduced the term. It took a little while. And that's one of the, where I think when, when the real deep history stuff is done on reviews, people are going to start exploring why. Why did it take off? You're going to see a graph that shows that. Again, we don't... We, you know, terminology. Here it's cropping up. This is in the BMJ. 1982, the term is cropping up. It's crossing from psychology, where Jean Glass, psychology and education, where they're working in the mid-70s, crossing over, 1982. So this is the first time I've been able to find the phrase systematic review, meaning what we would now use it to mean in the BMJ. You've got that 1867 example. This is um, looking at hypertension, comparing non-drug treatments. And nice little quotes again, in it? I don't know if we, we still see some of this writing now in the BMJ. The reviewing the published work ceases to require the judgment of Solomon. Um, becomes a quasi-experiment. We use the meta-analysis. Uh, meta so it's sort of saying this is a more objective way of doing things. Instead of Solomon or some supreme being deciding, 
we're going to let the numbers decide. We're going to get the process decide. We're going to make sense of what research has already been done. Citing, quoting uh, Gene Glass. So again, let's think about the terminology. So I, came, I started work here in Oxford. Uh, Richard, Dahl was still, Richard Dahl was still with us. And, but in 69, Richard Dahl publishes in the BMJ, highlighting it there. It's not what we would now regard as our typical meta-analysis review, but it is what we increasingly are seeing as a review to bring together the evidence in a systematic way. And Richard Dahl is talking about bringing together evidence on adverse effects systematically. Again, you can see what I'm trying to illustrate is this concept Comes, we're coming at it from many different angles. Jump back a little bit, again on terminology, but also to illustrate how the world maybe needs to you know, um, reflect on the history and move itself forward. People were saying things 40, 50 years ago that only maybe people started paying attention to, over real serious attention to over the last five or ten years. Shake, 1976, 28 reports, 29 studies. And look at the time of that. Again, as a, wearing my historian hat, look at that. I think, oh, love it. look. They've gone back to 1922. Studies from 1922 to 1970. Because the procedure's been around for a while. Now, how many reviews do we see? And they've only gone back you know, 40 or 50 years because of convenience of searching the electronic literature. They went back to 1922, uh, published in Pediatrics. The purpose of the study is to review the English language literature. And we might now look at that and say, bit of bias there, just looking at English, uh, shake. You should have looked at uh, some other language as well. Particular emphasis now on the assessment of the scientific merit of the studies. So now, not necessarily on the meta-analysis, but are the studies good enough? And there is some sort of risk of bias quality, a critical appraisal. Uh, tool and you can see again the point is not working the top Kaiser 1922 down to Roadhouse 1970 with a measure of how good was the study design how good's the sample how good's the description of the illness critical appraisal risk of bias going on and one of the fascinating things that they found um, when they did that is that the quality and the conclusions weren't necessarily related what was well related was are you the sort of person that does the operation or the sort of person that does not do the operation? And if you're the sort of person who does the operation, you conclude in your study that the operation is effective. So the surgeons tended to conclude it worked. The public health people tended to conclude it didn't work. Didn't work. And again, right now, now suddenly we think, well, that's what we're confronted with now to some extent, is, in, is the bias of the researcher. So... Um, 89, this is the quote, uh, effective care in pregnancy and childbirth, two-volume work, uh, big, hefty uh, books, full of systematic reviews, and there's the foreword from Archie Cochran, where he's moving on, and he's sort of welcoming this now. The systematic view of the randomised trials is in this book is a new achievement, it's a real milestone. And that book contains chapter after chapter, and they're tiny chapters, sister individual reviews. Nowhere near the many, many pages that we now feel we have to write as a systematic viewer. One or two pages, quick bit of methods, quick bit of uh, what studies did we find, quick analysis, answer. But bringing together tons and tons of material to help people working in maternity care. So we then move to another element of the history, and again, these are important little things because certain things clicked 
and certain things have stayed with us. Forest plots, that, that, that picture that you'll be familiar with if you look at reviews, the meta-analysis plot. 78, we see this thing over on the right here, and it's not bigger, because if you make it bigger, it's, it's a screen grab from JAMA. If you make it bigger, it just it pixelates. You can't see anything. You can see it better when it's smaller. It's not a traditional forest plot, because it's not pooling the results, but it's just showing the result of each study and its confidence interval, and because they were looking at negative trials, so-called negative trials, partly to illustrate that some trials are called negative just because they're not statistically significant. Lewis and Ellis produced something similar with a meta-analysis in 82, and this was their um, thing, and this, this picture is from thing, an article that I was pleased to write with Steph Lewis, who is the daughter of... Uh, the Lewis, who is the first author uh, of, of that thing. We just, we just reproduced it there, and that's what it looked like. So it doesn't look like a traditional forest plot. But it did, it's one of the first examples of where down the bottom is the pooled result. That all beta blockers pooled, that's the average of all of the studies. So it's a pictorial way of showing it. Up to then, you might have a table. Or up to then, you might simply have the average result. This is showing the contribution of each of the studies. In 83, and this we haven't nailed down, yeah, at the time Steph and I wrote this, and we wrote to various people who uh, may have been involved early on. Stephen Evans, who's a statistician, some of you may know, Stephen said, well, actually, I think I was the one who suggested that we replace it, uh, we replace that um, Lewis and Ellis plot with something that would have a mark for the central point and then a line going through it. The Lewis and Ellis plot is a rectangle with a mark for the point estimate. The traditional forest plot now has that square, and its size is proportional to the amount of evidence and a horizontal confidence interval. So Stephen Evans uh, suggests that this would be what the Lewis and Ellis plot looks like as a regular forest plot. And so, so what you know, Steph did as our figure two in the BMJ article was to say, well, this is what it would look like now, and it looks different. 1998 is probably the first time that what we would now fully recognise as a forest plot hits the literature. So Steph uh, drew that retrospectively from her father's work. Her father hadn't drawn a forest plot that looked like that. But in 1998, the antiplatelet trialist collaboration, so looking at antiplatelet therapies, draws one, and that's it. And that potentially is the first forest plot in the literature. And that is not very different to what we would still see now, 30 years on. Things have changed slightly, but still the basic principles of the, the square being proportional, the horizontal line, the line of no effect going up the middle, sorry, line of no difference going up, the diamonds to illustrate the average, the dotted line to illustrate the average point all the way up. Been there a while. So, are there other examples? And again, I'm just going to illustrate a couple of examples again, just to say that when people say, oh, it's all, it's all it's a feature of the last couple of decades. Well, Sternsfold in 74 did an extremely important review of radiation therapy for breast cancer, for women with breast cancer, concluding that actually um, it might not work. It may be dangerous. It may not improve survival. It may have an effect on the, on the cancer coming back around the breast, but that's not why you're using this therapy. You're using this therapy to try and keep the woman alive, and maybe this therapy is actually uh, lethal in the long term. 
So Stern's fall did that in 74. Subsequent reviews of radiation confirmed it, but now our radiation therapy is better, and those harmful effects of irradiating the heart, uh, those are being minimised. So now it has a survival advantage, but there's 1974. 75, Tom Chalmers, not related to Ian, uh, pulls ascorbic acid for the common cold, uh, concluding there's not a lot going on. Shake, which I've already illustrated, not just looking at the quality of the evidence, pulls it and makes a, makes a statement about cost-effectiveness in view of the cost, financial and human, as well as the lack of evidence to support it. Uh, it, either get on and do a proper trial or maybe stop it. And again, how common are those sorts of things now? We need to feel this because we need to feel why are, people, why are people doing these things now? Why were they doing them in the past? Inter, uh, International Anticoagulant Review Group, 1970, do the sorts of reviews I'm proud to work on still in Oxford. Individual participant data. They gathered the data by building a collaboration. This type of review is still very rare, where people actually share their patient-level data. But it's not new. In 1970, it was pooled. The evidence was pooled. People joined together in a collaboration to do it. Early, the, this is the, the review I'm proud to still work on here with the CTSU that's now up the hill at the Old Road campus. Um, in 84, before I joined, when I was still finishing my, my degree, uh, they got together at Heathrow. They formed the Early Breast Cancer Trialist Collaborative Group. That group met in Oxford in the Saeed Business School in June of this year. This is still rolling. Every few years it's still rolling. Update on the data. New trials are coming along. The idea being that this is a disease that is very common. The treatments for it might not be great, but if we could pool the evidence, we could keep women alive. They could survive their breast cancer. And it led to this, which is, you know, to some extent, we almost view it as an iconic, 1998, this forest plot in the Lancet, all of the trials of, of drug called tamoxifen versus no tamoxifen. On the left is recurrence. Does it stop the disease coming back? On the right is death. Does it stop the disease from killing uh, the woman? Definitive meta-analysis. Uh, published uh, in The Lancet in 1998. Still remember it very well. Um, partly because, well, you know, actually because I, so your more senior colleagues, some of whom you would know, Rory Collins, Richard Pito, uh, here in Oxford, they were the leads uh, on the media. I was one of the juniors. I, I was responsible for going up to Radio Oxford in Summertown and talking, doing the radio interviews. And up at 6 a.m. in the morning to do the first one. And what was the first headline on that day? Frank Sinatra has just died. Who knows who Frank Sinatra is in the room? Hands up. Because sometimes I say it and people say, oh, who, who? Right, very famous person. And very sadly, the one o'clock BBC News on the television, Richard Peter was supposed to be the live first interview on, rang up and said, sorry, Richard, we're not dealing with you. Uh, we've got someone from the Frank Sinatra Appreciation Society. They're the lead-off news on the BBC One News at one o'clock on that Friday. Well remember it. How... It's, this is a big story, and it's a big story until Frank Sinatra dies, and then we're gone. But it's the sort of thing, you feel sad when you're standing up in Radio Oxford at 6 o'clock in the morning and they don't want to talk to you anymore. Uh, but then you think, well, actually, our legacy, uh, you know, whether or not we will outlive Frank Sinatra's legacy, we don't know. 
Um, but certainly on the day, on that Friday in May 1998, Frank beat us. Uh, collaboration working together. And again, that's so the early breast cancer trialist group, people share their data. Four or five or six hundred trial groups around the world share the data. Again, it's unusual. But collaboration exists. The, the ECPC, as it's called, the two-volume work that Archie Cochran introduced, that was a bunch of people collaborating. Dan Fox in 2011, who's, who's very interested in the policy-making side of things, history, you know, credits it with having a great move, uh, build, building something, getting something moving. So we have to think about collaboration, which then sort of brings us to you know, Cochrane, formerly you know, the Cochrane Collaboration. There's the logo. The logo is of uh, steroids, showing the evidence on steroids to keep babies alive. And you know, part of the rationale is that until the evidence was pooled, people didn't know how effective these things were. Once it was pooled, but it still took a while for people to take notice and start acting on it. But there, there will be human beings alive today because that showed that the mums should have steroids. So the reviews are keeping people alive. But we've got to think about why we do them. So Cochrane, there's a picture of Archie Cochrane, 1970s, he criticises the profession. And this is really interesting for us to look back on because he says you should bring the results together. Ten years on, and it's got nothing to do with Archie Cochrane, we get electronic publishing. And electronic publishing was not the internet. Again, those of you, you know, who, uh, you know, the younger ones amongst, uh, amongst you, uh, electronic publishing was you put it on a disc and the disc survives through your letterbox. That's how pregnancy and childbirth was served. That's how Cochrane Library was originally circulated. It's on a CD and the CD arrives in your letterbox and you put the CD in your computer. Now how many of you have uh, got a CD player that you can connect to your computer? And how many have got a floppy disk drive? The ECPC was on the hard, the three and a quarter inch discs. That's how it came. The virtue being that next time we issue the disc, we can have updated some of its content. Because when your BMJ arrives through your letterbox, there's not a big articulated lorry outside with all of the past issues of the BMJ scribbled in to update them because new evidence has become available. But electronic publishing allows that. And then a decade on, the internet. And that transforms it. An early internet, it just means that we can send you the stuff uh, more easily. We can, it's a good dissemination tool. But then the internet, and this is again the other thing that needs to be looked at in history, has transformed how we do reviews. From people like me going from the Radcliffe Infirmary to the Radcliffe Science Library to climb a ladder, to take a volume, to bring it to the photocopier, fill in a photocopier form, see people smile because they remember filling in those pink forms at the Radcliffe Science Library, photocopying it, bringing it back, to now you sitting, click, 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 oh, got the PDF, job done, go and have a cup of coffee. You know, remember us walking across to the Radcliffe Science Library. Remember us filling in the forms for an interlibrary loan and six weeks later we might get an article with a big instruction on the back, do not photocopy this article. You will breach copyright. And just photocopy it, keep it spare, got a spare, because I'm going to scribble all over it. So, so the, you know, that made a massive difference. Cochrane itself, Cochrane Centre opens 92, update software, publish the Pregnancy and Childbirth Collection. 95, the Cochrane Database, first CDSR comes out. 98, Cochrane Library on the Internet. 2013 was the 20th anniversary. We're now at the 25th anniversary. How has it grown? Well, that first Cochrane Library in 95 had 50 reviews on it. 
you can see there was very steady state. Now we're, it's, it's almost steady state. It, you know, 3,007, 4,009, 5,000, 6,000. We're about 8,000. It's about 8,000 now. But is that it? Is that all there is in systematic reviews? Not a hope. This is an article by uh, Hilda Bastian, 2010. And it's, an, it's got a title about you know, something like uh, 70 trials a day, 12 reviews a day. That was the output then. This is their graph showing the, the top one. There are various different ways you can search for systematic reviews. But the top one is estimating that by, from 1990, not a lot, not a lot, and then we're up at maybe 6,000. Down the, the bottom one, the very bottom line, that's Cochrane. So early on, you know, it's, it's a fair proportion until about 2,000. And then the world takes off. That was Hilda's estimate in 2010. Earlier this year, that graph was, was in a Nature article. This is across all disciplines. Their estimate is that we've passed the 200,000 mark now on systematic reviews across all disciplines. From the very early examples, so under this graph, they have a very nice timeline. 1904 is Pearson. Bubble, bubbles along, bubbles along. Few of those early examples aren't even making the graph. And then, poof, it just goes away. And that's what we're going to have to think about. What is going on here? This is a, this is a total shift. This is not a gradual growth. This is a, wow, it's taking off. We have a register of systematic reviews called Prospero. It now has more than 40,000 things in it. It began only five or six years ago with a mindset that we might have one or 2,000 a year. It's now running at 12 or 13 or 14,000 a year are being registered as, as new reviews. And that's only a sample of them. So something has happened again. I can't tell you what's happened. But the reality now, one of the really fascinating points from a graph like that is when Cochrane began in 1994, one of the first things that needed to be done was to find the trials. At that time in Medline, you could find 20,000 randomised trials easily. We need to sort this out. There's a lot of trials. We need reviews. Now, in Medline, you can find about 120,000 systematic reviews. So what's our next step going to be? Because we needed to sort it out, because there were thousands, tens of thousands of trials. We've now got more reviews than there were trials we could find easily when a lot of this activity began. And we just don't know where that graph is, going, is, is heading for. And we, we, we've got big issues about you know, how high should that graph go. Are, are people just doing reviews because it's easier to do a review than it is to do a new prospective study, typically? Are people just doing reviews to boost their CVs? Is that what's going on? Are these reviews legitimately needed? How many more reviews do we need of um, PET imaging for lung cancer? Which are some of the ch these are challenges. And where are these challenges? Because you have agencies across Europe saying, why do we need to do another review to feed our guideline when there's already a review out there? Can we please get together and have, have uh, things more organised? So I'm going to finish with a quote Back in 1976, from the, the journal that Jean Glass coins the phrase meta-analysis. Meta-analysis will without doubt be abused as well as used with positive benefit. And I think there's an important point there for us to think about. This is not all happy stuff. Uh, reviews are used and now we can see bias in reviews. We can see the prejudice that James Lind was trying to root out. 
We can see that in some reviews. We can see people doing reviews, doing things that are not systematic reviews and labelling them as systematic reviews because the label now means something. But then, then are we going to hit a problem in a few years from now where people say, reviews, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what they're doing. There's just too many of them. Yeah, what I'd rather have is go back to the days of, you're a very experienced practitioner. You've been treating this for a long time. What do you think I should do? Because I'm overwhelmed. I, maybe I can talk to my GP and I can't read 15 reviews of the same thing, even though I am an experienced reviewer. What are we expecting people to do as these reviews proliferate? So just to, to actually conclude, and it's the, this is wearing, so sometimes this talk is in the, one of the modules on the evidence-based healthcare, which is the history and philosophy module that Jeremy Howick looked after. And it's to make, uh, make them think, if you were going to study this history, how would you do it? And how would you do it systematically? So, you know, you know this is a non-systematic history of systematic reviews. Because I haven't searched everywhere where they might be. I've searched convenience, BMJ, fantastic, that they digitised. So I can, look at, I can look back at them. But I'll bet there'll be examples in other places that use the terms. But what I'd lo love to see at some point is someone say, why did they explode the way they did? And that's probably going to be the anthropologists or uh, sociologists who are going to look at it and say, why have they taken off? So, thank you.